Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Uh, My guest today is a really great guest, uh, Andrew Watson. He's part of the Royal Society. Uh, He's a research professor at University of Exeter, part of the Global Systems Institute. And we're going to talk about uh, evolution on Earth. And does that tell us that there's a likelihood of life on other planets and other systems? So, welcome, Andrew. Thanks for coming. Thank you for asking me. It's a pleasure. Yeah, no problem. It's a fascinating subject. Uh, tell me a bit about your background, and then I want to uh, ask you how you got into what you do, and uh, then start asking you about the possibility of life on other planets. Okay. Yeah, I did a, a first degree in physics, and then I, I worked with a guy called Jim Lovelock, that some people may have heard of. He was my PhD supervisor. And so I changed to to thinking about the evolution of the of the Earth. And then I worked in the States at the University of Michigan uh, on the evolution of atmospheres of other planets, Venus in particular, for a bit. And then I came back and I, I spent to the UK and really went into marine science. But also, I've always been interested in the in the evolution of the planet, of the evolution of life on Earth and the co-evolution of the planet, as it were. And um, so that kind of leads me naturally into thinking about, you know, life on other planets as as well. Mm. Um, so what apparent evolutions has our Earth's atmosphere undergone and how do we know? Well, it, or we, we don't know in detail what the early atmosphere of the Earth was like. We do know, or we, we, we think, that most of the gases and the volatiles, including most of the water on Earth, probably came riding in on comets, on meteorites that came in from the outer solar system, you know, sometime lightly after the Earth was mostly formed. And that, uh, that atmosphere would have looked pretty much like the atmospheres or in composition, like the atmospheres of Venus or Mars which is to say it probably was mostly carbon dioxide, uh, had a bit of nitrogen in it, some other noble gases, no oxygen to speak of, maybe some hydrogen and, uh, and a bit of methane. So a very different atmosphere. Um, quick, how much bombardment, how many comments would be needed 
in order to have the amount of water we have on Earth today? Well, the reason that we think this, of course, is that the models for the evolution of the solar system at that time, they don't have water here at, at the location of the Earth. The water and the other volatiles condense much further out, you know, around the orbit of Jupiter. You don't really need a huge amount because most of the Earth is, is not water and volatiles. And there are some big uh, protoplanets out there. There's one called Ceres, for example, which is big enough to be, you know, it's at least it, it's almost a planet, as it were. It's, um, it's round rather than potato shaped. Uh, you know, two or three of those hitting the Earth would probably have brought all the water that we need. Right, but um, typical comet size, uh, how many of those would be needed? Oh, it, well. You know, Ceres is really big, but um, has anyone done that calculation? You know, based on the amount of water on our planet, how many comets would be needed and of what average size? I expect somebody has, has done that, but we and we really don't know how much, you know, how big the, well, were they comets or were they bigger uh, meteorites, something coming from the from the the present asteroid bill, for example. So I don't, I don't, I've not seen calculations on that, but the calculations, but that I think you know, people do think that this is a pretty viable mechanism. Don't know exact numbers. Okay. So yeah, please keep going. So comets, other yeah, okay, hit the Earth. Um, uh, so water so that, to it, and then and then uh, another question about about the bombardment: uh, Would it have been short lived? Did it need to be short lived, or could it have been over a very long period of time? And and how would this change the Earth's atmosphere with each successful bombardment of a comet? Let's say. Well, we know that there was some water on the Earth, you know, really quite early, by a hundred million years after the the original formation. But we also know that there's. There are episodes of bombardment that go on for much uh, much longer than that, and well after the formation of the Earth. If you look at the moon, the the surface of the moon, you know, it looks it looks like it's been through uh, quite a bashing, and most of the that bashing was the so-called late heavy bombardment, which is somewhere around three point nine billion years ago, well, which is a good half a billion years after. The planet has formed so that there was a bombardment at that time of the inner solar system which may well have been where much of, uh, of these volatiles came from so it was probably a pretty long process that that bombardment incidentally the the theory is that that was caused by reorganizations in the out with the outer planets jupiter and saturn which at that time came into resonance uh, with one another, and that caused all kinds of chaos in the in the early solar system. That's that's the theory. So we got an atmosphere at that time, and we also know that life started on the planet at pretty much about the same time. I mean, the earliest rock. This is a, a really fascinating and important finding. The earliest rocks that could have evidence for life on the moon, you know, because they're sedimentary rocks or at least they're metamorphic now, but they were laid down in sediments, those rocks look as if they have evidence for life in them. So life has got going, you know, as it looks to me like as soon as the Earth was stable enough to be habitable. And that life would have been bacteria, of course. Uh, they definitely, they weren't photosynthetic. At least they didn't produce oxygen. They probably would have been killed if there was any oxygen on oh, no, They were obligate anaerobes as the biology. Well, yeah, what would be the atmosphere? What would be the composition of it at this time, do you believe? 
mostly carbon dioxide and and as I say, some some methane, some a little bit of nitrogen probably. There may well have been hydrogen, probably probably quite a lot of hydrogen, but because hydrogen escapes from the planet from from Earth, so it's difficult to keep an atmosphere of hydrogen. Anyway, those organisms probably pretty soon started using some of the carbon dioxide. They pretty soon uh, started producing methane, probably, because, you know, we know methane, methane production is an old uh, trait of bacteria. So they, right from the beginning, they would have been starting to alter that. Uh, what percentage of methane in the atmosphere and the environment do today's methane-using uh, bacteria consume? Like, what, what levels are necessary? Well, they... In the present atmosphere, you know, there's a couple of parts per billion uh, of methane, and methane, uh, you know, that that's a lot of that is produced by methane bacteria, methane-producing bacteria. They live in in wetlands. They live in the in the guts of um, of cows. Uh, they live in the guts of termites, and they produce much of the methane of the two parts per million or so of methane as it today. And that methane cycles through the atmosphere very quickly. Although it's only two parts per million, other compounds are at much higher concentration. Actually, it only lasts a, a few years in the atmosphere, so they has to be produced at a fair old rate. How would the Earth transition from a carbon dioxide dominant to a nitrogen dominant atmosphere? What would that look like, and what would be the characteristics if you could re create such a thing today of a, again, carbon dioxide dominant atmosphere versus nitrogen? Well, there was probably a lot of carbon dioxide in the early atmosphere because there has to be, you know, we something must have kept the planet warm. And so we think there was a much stronger greenhouse effect back then because the sun this is another important, you know, fact about the evolution of the planet. The sun was much less bright at that time, probably 25% less bright. And if you take were to take the modern atmosphere and turn down the sun, by 25%, then the planet would freeze over. So the early atmosphere must have had more greenhouse gases, and we think that those were carbon dioxide largely and me and methane too. And then, so the bacteria probably used some of the carbon dioxide and they made some of the methane. And then the big event is about 3 billion years ago when oxygen photosynthesis was invented, and that's invented by... But it was invented just once by a single organism. So, you know, it, and this is probably the most important organism in the history of the planet Earth. It's a, it was a single bacteria that did that. And all of the photosynthesis that you see today comes from that one, that one event. That's a pretty amazing thing. Yeah, but how can anyone possibly know that? How can we know that it was a single event? Well, it could have been a single event, I'm sure, but... One bacteria, I don't, I don't know if it would have cut it. Well, you know, perhaps conditions were such that trillions of bacteria at that time were able to adapt and and now start using the oxygen in the atmosphere. So, still a singular event, you know, very localized in time. But maybe uh, I don't know, you know, a thousand years or ten thousand or a hundred thousand years is is still considered maybe a single event in the the landscape of time. But what, what would well, it look like if you put some um, bumpers on it? What do you think it would look like? What happened? Well, I think that the actual, you say, you know, photosynthesis, oxygen-producing photosynthesis is an amazingly complex uh, piece of uh, biochemistry. And, it, you know, one organism, it, it has to have evolved initially in one organism. It didn't simultaneously, you know, very shortly after that, maybe that organism's very successful 
and produces a lot of offspring, but initially it has to evolve in one organism. So it is a single organism that did this. So then, and we know that that organism is subsequently, you know, if you look at a tree today, the the photosynthesizing part of it is uh, is the chloroplasts, as they're called, inside uh, the cells of the leaves. And those chloroplasts, you can still see the, the bacterial DNA inside those chloroplasts. So they come from the essentially the ingestion, the symbiosis with what was originally a bacteria. And that's true of all the different kinds of photosynthesis on the planet today. So it's a single organism that did this. I don't see how else it can possibly be. Okay. You know, subsequently, that probably occurs about 3 billion years ago, and subsequently, oxygen doesn't appear immediately by any means. It takes about half a billion years, in fact, for the oxygen to actually appear as free oxygen in the atmosphere. But when it does that, that's, uh, you know, a turning point in the planet's uh, history. And once the oxygen appears, it never disappears. So from that time on, there's some oxygen in the atmosphere and the whole planet changes at that time. You know, it goes from being dominated by carbon dioxide and pretty, pretty reducing environment on the surface to being oxidized and the rock, the type of rocks changes, change, the atmosphere changes, the ocean changes. Where would this large source of oxygen come from? Where was the predominant carbon dioxide coming from and how would this switchover occur? Well, that's a very interesting question, actually, and it's actually, over the last 10, 15 years, we've got a different picture of that. What we think actually happened is that the oxygen photosynthesizers would have been consumed, they basically, you know, had a new way of making organic, and they would have been uh, eaten by other bacteria, and so you end with a lot of production of methane. You have methane and oxygen being produced simultaneously. But the oxygen, initially, it is, is simply used up by all of the, of the reducing rocks lying around. There's a huge amount of reduced iron, for example. The methane, however, can release into the atmosphere. In, in the upper atmosphere, that forms hydrogen, and the hydrogen escapes from the planet. And it's ultimately that hydrogen escape that oxidizes the surface of the planet. So it's actually so the process of, by which Earth has become this very unusual planet, I think, that's oxidized and um, with a large amount of oxygen is atmosphere, is actually hydrogen escape from the top of the Earth. Yeah, it's just weird. What do you guess the percentage of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere was before the changeover to, uh, you know, to the availability of, of oxygen? You know, today, just ballpark, and I could be totally wrong, Oxygen's about 19%. That's right. Carbon dioxide, you know, 450, 500 parts per million. You yeah. could just throw some average out there. Um, but what was it before this changeover? How much carbon dioxide do you think there was percentage-wise and methane and other stuff? Well, probably there was about one, at the time of that changeover or just before, probably about one bar of oxygen, one atmosphere of oxygen. So that, uh, sorry, one atmosphere of carbon dioxide. So... You know, as you say, carbon dioxide these days is like 400 parts per million, so which is like 0.04%. And back then, it would then have been, what's that? It's about about 50,000 times as much. So that's why it was a strong, good enough, you know, with that much carbon dioxide, 
you get pretty warm. Just ballpark, is that is that 2% or 20%? I'm just, and my math uh, is off. A bar of, ox, a bar of CO2 would probably have been about 80%, 70, 80% of, of the total. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, Similar to uh, how nitrogen is today, 70. Yeah, there would have been similar amounts of nitrogen as today. That's that's our thinking at the moment. If, if you look, interestingly, if you look on Venus, the actual amount of nitrogen in the Venus atmosphere is about the same as the nitrogen on Earth. And that is, you know, maybe because most of the nitrogen on both of our planets, both of these planets, is in is in the atmosphere, of course. You know what I think might be a really important calculation is, um, you know, how much is all the nitrogen that Earth holds right now in the atmosphere? You know, how much is all the oxygen, all the carbon dioxide? And then you go to your historical model and you put in those amounts too. So, yeah, you know, where would, uh, I don't know, trillions of, of tons of carbon dioxide go? Where would, you know, billions or trillions of, of tons of oxygen come from, nitrogen come from? Yeah. So you have this incredibly huge cycling of yes, gases. Where do they come from and where do they go? Right. And now and I, calculation I, I, home to figure that, you know. And and I and and we have at least you know I wouldn't say we know it all for sure, but I would say most of the nitrogen that's in the atmosphere now was most of the nitrogen on the planet. Uh, in fact, is in the atmosphere most of the of the accessible nitrogen anyway. And and it was probably the same then. The carbon dioxide has largely gone into the oceans and then into the and then into the rocks, into carbonate rock uh, especially. The oxygen has mostly come from the water and the hydrogen that was, you know, water is H2O. The hydrogen has escaped to the, uh, gone off the planet. So we still have the same, you know, mostly except for that hydrogen, the volatiles are all still here, but they're in different places. But yeah, just numerically, I just wonder um, how well it adds up. That's what I was We've done that kind of modeling. It adds up uh, pretty well. Yeah, pretty well. Well, what would be necessary to happen nowadays for a massive changeover in the uh, atmospheric composition we have right now? Like, what what would do that? What well, that? let's suppose that all life on Earth were to 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 cease, and all, all photosynthetic life were to cease. You'd get uh, a big increase in the carbon dioxide fairly quickly. It would come out of the oceans. It would then come out of the uh, would start to come out of volcanoes, and it wouldn't be taken up by and the oxygen would decline. It would take uh, several million years to go completely, but it would that the oxygen would would go, and you'd end up with a planet that that had, you know, still the nitrogen. Well, actually, slowly the nitrogen would go too because it would um, it would end up dissolving in the oceans as nitrate. So in, you'd end up with a carbon dioxide atmosphere, but probably a thinner atmosphere than we have today. So what do these dynamics tell you about, you know, a healthy and stable planet? You know, when people talk about global warming and all this other stuff, um, you know, you mentioned that life is essential for for this uh, this respiration to happen, for this oxygenation to happen, you know, photosynthesis. So um, we need quite a substantial amount of it, again, in order to maintain so what does that tell you about all the uh, the people talking about climate and everything with the knowledge you know? How much will the atmosphere be affected, could be affected, et cetera? And you know, does this give you any insight into what could be done to modulate it? Well, firstly, it's absolutely clear that the atmosphere and the oceans today are basically maintained by the life on the planet. So as I've just described, if you take the life off it, 
you end up with a with a planet that looks you know a bit like Mars or a bit like Venus. So so what we have today is actually essential to have the 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 life on the planet. Now if we increase the amount you know we're in we're busily increasing the amount of carbon dioxide and we are going to have pretty substantial effects on the planet. But if you compare the effect, you know, for instance, we are probably going to melt all the ice. We've probably, we've certainly already gone so far that we are going to melt all of the ice on Greenland and maybe uh, much of the ice on Antarctica too. But those are pretty small changes compared to the ones I've just been talking about, you know. So the planet is going to, would end up being warmer and wetter and uh, quite a lot different to what it is today, it would still be able to support life. But, it, you know, the main problem is actually the rate at which we're changing it. These changes that I've talked about took place over millions and tens and hundreds of millions of years. We're changing the planet at an unprecedented rate. And that, that's a problem for the life on it. Mm. Okay. So as to the possibility of life on other planets, uh, what is your study of our early environment and your modeling of other planets tell you? Well, you, you know, so we get there. I've done some work on this odd steps model. And um, the the interesting thing about that is from the, which links to the, the conversation that we've been having, is that those major changes in the Earth's environment, particularly that change where we got an oxidizing atmosphere, which incidentally is followed by an, a catastrophic climate, you know, ice age that lasts tens uh, of millions of years. Those major changes in the Earth are seem to be a company or somehow um, maybe promote uh, major changes in life on, on the planet. So at that time... You know, you see the origin of complex cells occurring at about the same time, maybe a little bit after that. And then more recently, but still a long time ago, about 600 million years ago, we you have uh, another set of, of, another really serious set of ice ages. And that proceeds by some tens of million years, the origins of the complex animals the so-called Cambrian explosion, which gives rise to the, if you like, the modern world with animals and plants. So evolution of life is really tightly coupled to the evolution of the planet. Quite hard to separate them. It's really the Earth system that's evolving. And in a certain sense, you know, the life of the planet and the planet itself form a close-coupled system. Okay. Um, so... Do you evaluate other planets that appear to be habitable and then try to figure out their atmospheres? What are the main ingredients in the soup of making an atmosphere, you know, in this recipe for uh, for planets? And, and what are you evaluating when you look out there? Well, you have to distinguish between the planets of the solar system, which we know quite a lot about, and we know a lot about their atmospheres, and the planets around other stars, the extrasolar planets, as they're called. Now, the... There's no other planet in the solar system that looks to have, um, you know, clearly there's no other planet or in a solar system that has, you know, the amount of life occurring at its surface that the Earth has. We do think that there's the possibility for bacterial life, you know, down inside 
some of the moons of Jupiter, for example, Europa, Ganymede, are uh, possibilities there. But that's we're talking about bacterial life there, and it's not the kind of vibrant life that affects the whole planet in the way that the Earth does. Then there's the question of looking for you know Earth-like planets around other stars, around other stars, and the problem there is you can't see the planet. You get to know about it really by the effect that it has on the star line of the star. And so far, we know extraordinarily little about their atmospheres. But you can tell whether they're in the so-called habitable zone, which is to say the whether they're the right distance from the planet to have liquid water on the surface, which at least is, you know, that's a, that's a prerequisite for the kind of life that we have on Earth. Um, on planets that would have bacteria, you know, possibly what, again, what kind of atmosphere could support uh, bacteria? Multiple different ones uh, for more advanced life, only one set of conditions. Like, what have you evaluated and how does this lead into the probability that there's some kind of life on other planets and in or out of our solar system? And what's the probability that there's advanced life? So, mm-hmm. you know, how do you go about evaluating this, figuring out what's possible where? And what's needed where? Well, the kind of thing that we are looking for, if we're looking for life on an extrasolar planet, would probably, I mean, what people really want to see is, is there oxygen in, in the atmosphere? And although oxygen itself, you know, there are ways, we know ways in which it ought to be possible with, uh, over time, to get, some kind of information on the atmospheres of planets around other stars. You know, for example, when the planet moves between us and the star, there's a period where, you know, some of the light from the star goes through the planet, so you can do spectroscopic analysis on that and make, and get some information about what's in the, the atmosphere. And although it's difficult to do that with oxygen, you can do it for ozone, and ozone... If there's going to be ozone in the planet, in the in the atmosphere, almost certainly there's going to be oxygen too. Mm. So, so that's something that people would very much like to be able to do. And at the moment, we can't do it. And even the you know the telescope that everybody's uh, really excited about at the moment is the James Webb Telescope, which mm. is a, a infrared. It's looking in the right area of the radio spectrum to see of the light spectrum to see those kinds of signals but the difficulty is it's just immense in trying to in trying to get those signals but these signals will occur basically only when the planet moves in front of the star and only for a short time when it does that and it's going to be tough to do that and whether the, the james webb will be able to do that or not i think is uh is a moot point at the moment so but we do, you know, there's certainly plans to put to to try to get telescopes that would be able to do that kind of thing. And we'd be looking for ozone, which might be diagnostic for oxygen, but also for a whole slew of other gases that might be produced by bacteria. Things like uh, sulfur gases, you know, and methane, mostly reducing gases, gases that are in very low concentrations in the in our atmosphere because of all the oxygen. But yeah, we have ideas about what, essentially what the early Earth's atmosphere would look like, and we would be looking for those kinds of 
guesses. Mm, okay. Well, very good. Um, what's the best place for people to find out more and see the latest and greatest in terms of models? You know, where can they go? Well, good question. There, there's quite a lot written about on that's on the web. If you look up the James Webb Telescope and look up, if you ask the question, what was what's the web built for, as it were? This is one of its, you know, prime missions is to look for to be able to examine the atmospheres of extrasolar planets. So there's quite a lot written on that. About quite a lot less, I would say, you know, you start to have, I mean, we wrote, I wrote a book with my colleague, Tim Linton, about 10 years ago called Revolutions That Made the Earth, which was kind of a semi-popular book, which was, took us through the evolution of, of this planet. And Tiru has written a book, a, a much shorter book called A Short Guide to Earth System Science. And that is a, is a good book to look at, to look at some of this stuff as well. It's not, it's not a lot. I, I think I'm astonished at how little there is, in fact, written about the early history of, of the earth, because we now know quite a lot about it. So I wish I could give you, could say, go to this site or this website, but actually I don't know it one. Yeah, no worries. Well, Annie, it's been a good call, and I appreciate being on the podcast. And hopefully, you're going to be the one that fills in this whole huge knowledge bank of information for your studies. So, thank you for being here. Okay, well, thanks for a good talk. Yeah. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.